0: Hello and welcome to Tez Podgogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers at Tez. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom practitioners today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes on past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES and this week my guest is Sarah Baker, a professor of developmental psychology and education at the University of Cambridge. In this episode we discuss the importance of building self-regulation in the early years of a child's education. To begin with, Baker explains exactly what self-regulation is and why it matters so much for all children, but particularly for those who are just starting school.
1: Self-regulation is a really important skill. It's something that develops over quite a long period of time in early childhood. And it allows children to adapt their behaviours to different situations. So what that means is that with self-regulation, you're not just responding automatically uh, like a reflex to something that happens, you're able to potentially weigh up different possible courses of action, or you might uh, not do anything at all and just pause and, um, you know, calm down, for example, if you're really upset. There's all kinds of different ways that self regulation can play out. We sometimes talk about different types of self-regulation, so that could be behavioral self-regulation, that could be emotional self-regulation, or that could be cognitive self-regulation, and that's to do with thinking and planning, for example, um, the next steps, planning a strategy, or um, remembering, you know, what worked well last time, and might I try that again, all of that kind of stuff.
0: Is there one of those three, you know, behavioral, emotional, cognitive, that is say more important than the other or are they all equally important?
1: I guess they're probably all equally important and some people will naturally uh, be quite um, adept in one of these and struggle a bit more with another one. Some children may find it difficult to regulate their emotions, but at the same time be really uh, clever and uh, you know really good problem solvers. For example, so it, or it could be the other way around. Uh, but it's it's you know really dependent on the situation which one of those is going to uh, get you through. <laughs> um, and and also as I say, depending on the individual, people will have their different strengths.
0: And so I can see how, you know, as you grow up, maybe you become more aware of these and it's easier to kind of control these things. But obviously at EYF, EYF stage and key stage one, um, our youngest children, I presume, probably struggle with this a bit more. So, you know, why do you think it's so important to look at this, um, you know, at that particular age group? So It's
1: important in, in the early years because we know from a lot of research in neuroscience and from studying the way that the brain develops that there's a really important period of time from birth actually all the way up through into primary school, even into the teenage years where self-regulation and some other related abilities are are developing and what's going on in someone's environment during those years can really have an impact on the way those skills develop. For example, if children experience a lot of um, unpredictable situations or if uh, things are a little bit chaotic or a little bit worrying for them, they can find it difficult to, to know what to expect and to develop the the habit really of of planning ahead for example so that's just one way in which your early experiences can affect your self-regulation at the same time if you're getting a lot of support if you have a lot of routines and you have um, you know adults who are spending time talking to you and using a lot of those those verbal supports and scaffolding then you might be able to develop self-regulation more quickly and more effectively because you're learning to use self-talk to problem solve when something becomes tricky.
0: So do we know anything about how pandemic impacted this? Then, I guess on one hand, you could say that things have been chaotic and she, you, know, children might know what to expect and they're obviously in a different environment. But at the same time, if they do have maybe their parent, they're one-to-one with them all the time, Helping them with those scenarios, like you just said, then maybe it could be that they're better than it, better at it than worse. You know, do we know anything about the impact of that?
1: I wish we knew more. I really do. Uh, there's a lot of factors, like with anything in in child development. There's a lot of different influences that are kind of constantly um, competing for, you know, for having an effect on on children. So. That's right. There are the circumstances that might be unpredictable, but there's also what's going on around you with the individuals around you, the relationships that you have. You may also have older siblings um, or other people, uh, you know, who are who are in your kind of daily life, who are serving, you know, playing a similar role. I I don't know. I mean, from what I've heard, um, although there isn't any really good research yet on specifically on self regulation, uh, a lot of children. Um, have, have struggled with their social and emotional development, broadly speaking, and that's through reports and big you know, surveys that have been done. Um, the Sutton Trust, for example, had a had a survey um, with parents. And then also there have been surveys done with those working in, in nurseries and so on. And it does seem that children's social emotional skills have been impacted. Of course, there are also reports about their language skills in the early years being impacted. And I guess that that's all for obvious reasons. Self-regulation specifically, I don't know of any good research on that, but I guess we would expect that it has been affected too.
0: For the best part of the last decade, Baker, alongside colleagues at the University of Cambridge, has been conducting research in reception and year one classes in schools across the country. They've looked at how exactly we can ensure that self-regulation is built during this stage of education and the challenges that teachers face when trying to do so. We started out, I think it was about
1: eight years ago, with a group of teachers, and we brought them together into a community of practice, which involved both teachers and researchers working together, thinking around the, uh, the ways in which we might support children's self-regulation through play, and that then led to a second set of, uh, a second community of practice where another group of teachers joined us and so all together through those first two communities of practice over the period of a few years we worked with between 15 and 20 educators in a variety of schools some of them came from um schools that you know small rural schools that had mixed ages in the classroom because they were so small others came from you know three-form entry schools and so they had really different contexts really different constraints um but what what everyone what everyone shared was this interest in how do we how do we give children how do we put them at the center of their own learning while also trying to guide them on a certain path and trying to teach them things and not giving up on the idea that adults have something to offer here, which of course they do. So it was a really interesting set of conversations. We brought the the research literature. Uh, to the table. And we discussed with teachers, what are some of the obstacles that they experience when supporting children to be more self-regulated? And those obstacles could be in the form of, um, you know, the the structure, the curriculum, the structures around the teachers in the classrooms. Uh, it could be the senior leadership that had certain expectations. It could even be things that are really practical, like the way the timetable is. And if if as a school I have to go um, out on the playground at a very specific time, it means my class can't just carry on doing whatever you know. Even if we're super engrossed in something, um, so so there were a number of constraints that we we surfaced. Um, there were also a number of enablers. For example, you know, really just the teachers wanting to provide those opportunities for children to give them more open-ended activities to connect their learning in a meaningful way to what was going on in the outside world or what was going on at home, to give the children an opportunity to have a say in the assessments um, and how they would how they would show what they had learned. Uh, you know, a huge variety of ways that children could so experience and also at the same time practice and build their self-regulation
0: so why did you use, um, look at it through play? Is that because the, that's what the literature says is, you know, the most effective way of building self-regulation? Or is it because with this age of students, reception year one, that's already so much part of their every day?
1: Yeah, it was really interesting, actually. There was a big contrast between reception and year one classes. And the reception teachers um, really felt very comfortable with the open-endedness and, um seizing the moment and, you know, guiding the children and having this much more child-centered practice. Um, and the year one teachers really had a completely different practice, I would say. And they were learning quite a lot from the reception teachers. But as far as as far as far the role of play goes, um, yeah, I mean, it's an umbrella. When I say play, I think of it as an umbrella and it includes lots of different things. For example, you know, child-centered learning for example, I mentioned um, giving giving the learners the opportunity to guide how they would show their own work and that can be quite playful and it's not just something you would do with reception you could do that with year two or year five you could say we're going you could either you know you could make a little movie with the iPad to tell us what you learned or you could um you know do a, a presentation to the class or you could, you could write something if, if that's what you really want to do and you could put pictures alongside and and so on. So when I say play, I, I mean, you know, opening up the learning, engaging the children in meaningful ways. And it's not just giving them a choice between a red pen and, and a black pen. That's not a, you know, doesn't impact on their learning, so to speak. Um, but there's, yeah, there's lots of different ways that teachers could be playful in their practices all the way through, um, all the way through the different phases.
0: So what, what did you find through the research? You know, wh- what sort of activities kind of encourage self-regulation more than others, say? So.
1: We didn't actually measure the children's self-regulation. What we did is we were only working with the teachers and it was a project on professional development of teachers. So we heard from them what they felt was working well and where they experienced some obstacles and areas that they you know, felt needed more refining or actually even areas that they just decided, that's not for me, <laughs> I'm not gonna try that again. Um, and, and there was a big range. Uh, what it seemed to come down to was um, the teacher's fundamental comfort with trying new things First of all, of course, and that's the case for any kind of professional development. But at the same time, the teacher's concepts of their own role as a teacher in a classroom and whether they were willing to give up a little bit of control, actually, these aren't necessarily words we use a lot when we think about education. Often it's kind of very, I don't know, I want to say Touchy feely, or, you know, like feel, feel good words. But, but actually, it was, it was kind of about control for a lot of them and about being in charge and about directing what was happening and knowing where it was going and not putting themselves in a position where they might be a little bit afraid just because they didn't know what was coming next. Um, so some teachers were just more comfortable with that than others. Um, we ended up, where we ended up was thinking about pockets and spaces and not asking anyone ever to completely transform their practice because that's unrealistic and probably undesirable too, but that we could think about, aha, uh-huh, so in this classroom, you know, some of the teachers we worked with, they decided really for them what was going to be most impactful and, and most um, sustainable was to think about how they used language with the children. And for them, it was thinking about... Um, building in open-ended questions and dialogue and extending the children's thinking through certain turns of phrase. And, and that was great. And that's what they worked on. And that's where they felt they made a lot of progress. And for other teachers, it could be completely different. you know. In another project, we were able to go to a number of classes. Um, I think it was over 30 classes. 30 classrooms in the end and observe what was happening and then on a different visit we had these little games that we can do with children to assess their self-regulation and in that study what we found was that children had more opportunities to practice their self-regulation and develop their self-regulation when they were spending more time in either free flow activities or in um small group were, you know, supported by an adult, compared to children who were spending the most time in whole class, you know, everyone sitting on the carpet, for example, doing their phonics lessons or whatever they might be doing there. Um, those were not opportunities for children. Number one, they couldn't practice self-regulation because they didn't really have, they weren't being challenged and stretched to do that. But number two, they also weren't getting that kind of Um, individualized support, you know, it's support if there's an adult next to you and who can adjust uh, that idea of scaffolding and give you kind of just the right, that Goldilocks (laughs) level of challenge. But even if you're working in a free flow situation and you're interacting with your peers, it's still the idea that you have that, that kind of feedback as to what's happening and you can adapt and adjust as you go. So that was definitely very interesting. I don't think it was very surprising, but it was interesting to see that it wasn't in those whole class, um, really formalized uh, scenarios that the children were um, having, you know, having the most opportunities to develop their self-regulation.
0: And in the schools that you went into and kind of did those different activities, you know, with the teachers you know, responsive to having more time for free flow then um, versus that whole kind of class. Because obviously when, you know, teachers resources are stretched and time is stretched, you can see how the whole class approach is much easier to handle. Maybe when you haven't got a TA or other people in the room with you um, compared to that free flow. I mean, how, yeah, how receptive were those teachers? Did you have conversations with them about how easy this was to do?
1: We definitely did. And it was the case for some Uh, In fact, for many, that when they first tried this, you know, when I talked about opening up pockets and giving a little bit, maybe, for example, doing an activity about superheroes, but not specifying every step on a worksheet that the children would just work through, but kind of leaving some of that a little bit open. Um, so, So little things like that, little tweaks to activities that they'd used in the past, even small things like that, you know, many teachers came back the next time and said, oh my gosh. <laughs> it was, it was so much harder for them and, and and therefore for me. And their work, you know, the the outcome just wasn't, it wasn't as beautiful as if I had told them. Um and this kind of stuff. So it's true that at first, uh the teachers and the children might experience a sense of like, ooh, this is really like not going well. <laughs> um, and so, and so, we find that it's important to, first of all, yeah, take small steps, but also to be prepared for that, and to think about what um, what we might, what strategies we might need to teach the children in order to engage effectively with this kind of open openness, which they might not be used to. Just like anything, uh, they can learn, but they need to build up. They need to build up to that, and the same for teachers. They they also might need to learn what strategies work for them. Uh, to to manage in a more um, in in a more open-ended classroom I will say though that something we've heard over and over again is the teachers say to us the children who were you know known to be the least focused or the children who were known to be um, I don't like this word but you know Potentially disruptive to others' learning, this kind of stuff. Those children, they seem to benefit the most from having more um, opportunity to direct their own learning. And I think that's, you know, it may be one of those things that you have to experience it to really believe it as a teacher. Um, but this idea of like having complete control over the whole class, and that's really reassuring, and you feel that now everyone can learn something. Actually, if if there are some children who you think will kind of just spin spin out of control with the right kind of support and with a little bit of time, those are the children who will be even more engaged in their learning than they would have been if you just kind of get them to comply, sit still, listen. I mean, are they really listening? It's hard to know.
0: Based on the findings of the research, Baker and others have developed a digital resource for teachers, which guides them to offer these opportunities for self-regulation in a classroom. Here she explains how it works.
1: We have a resource now that is online thanks to COVID, because when we couldn't work with teachers for quite a while, we need obviously we needed to give them space um, during the the hardest part of the pandemic. We worked on putting all of our materials online and it's structured as a professional development program and very much in the way that we would see teachers opening up pockets and opportunities for their learners to experience that playful approach and, and some, some um, learner-centered learning. The program is also structured in that way. So it's not linear you can dip in and out of different in different places depending on what you think um, you you would like to be working on, and uh, the idea is that there's a, a bit of a cycle of plan, do, review. So we invite uh, an educator to think about which area, having seen you know some of the options, which area they'd like to work on. So there's some planning involved, and then they go and try things out, and then they come back and they review it and they. Um, they reflect on what some of the barriers and the obstacles were. We've been working with a number of teachers now over a a number of years so that we actually have uh, a set of barriers and uh, obstacles and solutions, if you will, uh, that have been compiled through talking to a bunch of teachers. So it might be that somebody experiences something they can just come and look and say, Oh, okay, that's a good idea. So there's a bit of troubleshooting there. Um, And it's, it's, it's an iterative cyclical process. That's how we've structured it. So again, it's not kind of a manual that you just work through and it would be the opposite of what we were trying to achieve. If we gave teachers a script and said, here is a formula, go and do this. It'll be perfect. <laughs> um, of course it, you know, that would never work.
0: So it, when you're talking about, you know, the, the kind of areas they could look at, what, what are some of the options then?
1: Well, so one idea, so first of all, we like to think about the different layers of practice. So there's the things that are happening in the moment. And by that, I mean, for example, uh, the words we use, the kind of questions we ask, are we extending the child's thinking um, by, you know, following up and adding to it? Do we, do we use informational Language as opposed to instructional language, and so on. So, there's all the kind of things that ha- can happen in the moment. Um, and then there's the level of things that might be planned out. And these could be, you know, activities, these could be units in the curriculum, schemes of work, you know, it might be planned in collaboration with a colleague, et cetera, but that kind of layer. And then there's the more overarching structural layers of like timetables and school and things that maybe teachers actually don't have as much control over directly themselves but nevertheless it might be worth having a conversation with senior leadership about again if that's you know the um the what's happening across a term or the the daily timetable or uh, resources things like this so that's the kind of that's the first way of thinking about it. And then another way of thinking about it is in terms of, um, well, we call them different trails. <laughs> um, and the different trails have to do with, for instance, um, involving children and in making decisions about their learning. I mentioned that earlier in this idea, for example, that could be asking them to choose how they will be assessed. That's That's one area. So involving children Um, in making decisions about their learning, providing meaningful context. So connecting learning to what's going on in the outside world, something that's personally meaningful for the children, um, writing for an audience, for instance, that kind of thing, as opposed to just, let's just write this now. And it's just sits there in a, in a kind of, um, neutral, neutral way following children's interests is another one Um, making space for some spontaneity and open-endedness and so on so these are the these are the so it's like there's like the layers and then within those within each of those you could think about ways and these kind of more general ways and then within each of those there might be specific strategies um, and specific things people could try out
0: And more recently, Baker has been working with teaching assistants in schools to identify the ways in which they can be supported to help students with self-regulation. We were driven
1: by the teachers that we worked with to do a project with teaching assistants. And this is because some of the teachers we worked with who were incredibly engaged, incredibly motivated, they'd done things like, you know, take all but 10 chairs out of their classroom. So, I mean, really uh, quite radical things, you know, some people would say, Um, but this was going very well for them and they were working as a pair. So they were doing a lot of planning together, Um, a very collaborative school. And the two year year one teachers said, you know, actually, what we really need to do is we need to bring our TAs along with us because we're doing these things that the TAs are seeing and going, what the heck? Why in the world, you know, it's just so so non-traditional as far as um, even just the way the classroom looked. And therefore, we thought actually it would be quite interesting and important to understand what the perspectives of teaching assistants might be on some of these strategies. And also, which ones would be most relevant to TAs? Because a TA doesn't usually, for example, they don't usually have responsibility for planning um, a unit. Right, so anything to do with that, or or even making decisions about assessment and these kinds of strategies, which might be within the remit of a teacher in the classroom, a TA, it's just not going to be that relevant. So we really narrowed it down and focused in on talk and language and the talk strategies. We called them talk invitations that TAs might be able to use with um, with the children they were working with, and we ran. A community of practice with a bunch of TAs from different schools. It was really lovely. So when they came back to speak to us about their experiences, we were hearing things like, you know, I was surprised by how these young children had so much insight into their own learning. I think when they, the TAs launched, launched into this journey, they really did not expect to discover so much about the learners. I think a lot of the TAs were uh, rightfully, you know, concerned about not wanting to disrupt any learning. They're there to support the children and the teacher and not get in the way. Um, But they discovered that actually there were were really effective ways that they could support the learning, extend the learning. Occasionally, yes, maybe go on a small diversion because they would ask a question, which might open up an additional theme that wasn't anticipated. But they could navigate back and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't as scary once they tried it out as they thought it might be. So it, it ended up being really lovely. And then we, we had some TAs, uh, even very quickly after a couple of weeks already establishing new routines with the children, for example, at the end of a PE lesson, um, throwing the ball back and forth and asking, you know, or each child saying what they thought went really well for them today. And, You know, those were routines that the TAs thought they could carry on. They could maybe build them into some of the other lessons, developing, you know, space for metacognition and self-regulation. So again, little areas where you can get a glimpse of something and then it builds everyone's confidence.
0: Mm. And when you were talking about you know the kind of like talk strategies and things, so you know if I was a TA and I wanted to go and do something different in my class tomorrow, I know you've just given the P example, but what what were some of the like very you know basic kind of things that I could ask children then um, to kind of aid their self regulation?
1: Some some really simple things like um, what makes you think that? It's just getting the children to then reflect, and we did have some TAs say. You know, or one of them in particular, I remember him saying, and he was was telling us this story. He was just so animated because it was such a kind of revelation for him. He said, the kids looked at me and they didn't know what to say because they'd never been asked that before. And so it opened his eyes. It opened their eyes. It was also, again, an example of like, well, they didn't know what to say because they'd not done it before. Well, so there's some learning we need to do. How do we talk about our thinking? how maybe we, we can model this, maybe we can model this as adults in the classroom alongside them, so that when they are asked, they have some phrases and they start to understand how we do reflect on our own learning. Um, so again, I don't wanna paint some kind of rosy picture, it's 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 a starting point and there will be surprises, there will be questions, um, but but it can be really simple things, even just what makes you think that, or what did you enjoy about that?
0: And I know that obviously, you know, your work is predominantly for the, with the reception in year one and the early years. But obviously, like we we're talking about before with the with the pandemic and COVID and things, I mean, could you see how you know for older children who maybe are struggling with self regulation, who have kind of missed um, years of you know formal schooling, can, can all these could all these techniques work for them as well? You know, would you encourage other you know teachers of older children to look at the um, digital resource as well? I would definitely
1: encourage anyone working with any learners, including adult learners for that matter, our examples are probably, if you saw them, you you know, they would definitely be based on younger children, but you could adapt them. And that's something that we would quite like to do in a future project is think about the progression of these strategies through um, the different phases. What's funny, I think, is self-regulation, metacognition, all of these skills are traditionally thought to be the remit of older children and actually even adults and that little kids oh they just don't they don't do that kind of thing or they're not capable of this kind of thing well we know that they are capable of it and that it's during during those early years that these skills are really developing they continue to develop as i said earlier right up through into adolescence and even into early adulthood um even i am still learning strategies for for whatever it might be, whether it's a diet or whatever you're trying to do more exercise or, uh, better sleeping. Um, and so absolutely. I think everyone can, can be working on these skills and not to assume that just because you're over the age of six, seven, eight, whatever that that's, that's it. We've got them now.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Test Podagogy. Please join us again next week.
1: Today's episode of Tez Podagogy was written and hosted by Kay Parker. If you're interested in accessing all of our education news coverage, you can now get a digital magazine subscription for just
0: £3 for three months. Available on tez.com forward slash store.